And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. What's the history of entrepreneurship? Wow. I think the better question is, how are we going to get the history of entrepreneurship into one podcast episode? I don't think we can, but we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff today. Before we get into that, and I welcome someone to yet another conversation here on the show. Today's episode of Startup Hustles powered by Fullscale.io. Because hiring software developers is difficult, Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team Go to fullscale.io to learn more. With me today, I've got Derek Lido, and Derek is a professor at Princeton University. He teaches all about startups and is a professor of entrepreneurship and probably knows a whole lot of stuff that you're interested in hearing about. So let me go ahead without further ado. And Derek, welcome to Startup Hustle. Matt, I'm really happy to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. You know, there's so much to unpack here, but I think where we get we need to start is a little bit about your backstory and kind of what brought you to being professor and I believe also Dr. Lido at Princeton. Well, I was a science nerd, so I I got my doctorate in in physics, applied physics a long time ago. Uh went into the semiconductor industry when it was the golden age and um, did just about anything that could be done in the semiconductor industry and eventually became CEO of a large global semiconductor company. A entrepreneurial bug bit me and I did something that uh, uh, is unusual for successful CEOs. I retired in order to start a company from scratch and I did that and grew that to be a big global company in the field of market intelligence. A bigger, huger company came and bought us. And I was shocked when two weeks later, Princeton called me up and invited me to come teach. So uh, it was, not, so this, this was a journey that was not anticipated, but uh, since, since, um, you know, teaching at Princeton the last 12 years, I've, I've wanted to understand what makes some entrepreneurs successful and others not. When you shouldn't be able to tell the difference between, you know, the potential of these two people. And that has led me to many places. And most recently, I've had to dig into the history of entrepreneurship to understand how entrepreneurship really works. And What's surprising is we didn't really understand it. And, uh, and so all these new revelations are coming out. And, um, and I think it's going to make it more understandable for every entrepreneur and also something that um, 
will get entrepreneurs their due uh, relative to being appreciated for how much of the world they're responsible for creating. So you have a new book, The Entrepreneurs, which is the relentless quest for value. Um, so much conversation about that over the years, solving a problem and providing value. And, um, you know, with, with, as in order to write that book, is that where uh, it seems to me like if you want to study the history, at, well, if you want to learn about entrepreneurs and it's so it's unpredictable. So you, so you're you're a professor at Stanford. I dropped out of five colleges. Uh -huh. Right now with that, like with what you're saying, like I, I sometimes get on my soapbox because people like to ask, they're like, well, do you need to go to college? Do you do what's the history or whatever? I think entrepreneurship's really unpredictable in, in some regards. And in some regards, it seems really predictable because I can meet people and I'm like, man, you should be an entrepreneur. You've got you. You seem to have the qualities and the, the personality traits and the drive and the passion and whatever. But you know, as you're as you're getting ready to write a book, I'm sure that studying the history of it, which according to our friend Chat GPT, um, who might be might be a future professor someday himself, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, the history of entrepreneurship starts in 4000 BC when the ancient Sumerians in Mesopotamia develop a system of trade and commerce, including the use of currency and establishment of marketplaces. So we got six thousand years to unpack if that's yeah. the and, and, and the chat GPT is not up to the moment. It has not read my book because oh, oh, okay. it was able to trace entrepreneurial behavior back to 7,000 BC. Oh, wow. To hunter gatherers. Mm. So, and, you know, there, there are many quips about, you know, what, what the original, you know, professions might have been, but it turns <laughs> out. That's, I've um, referenced that before, Professor. And for those of you that don't know what we're joking about, many people joke that prostitution was the very first, very first form of sales. Is that yeah. is, is that is that it's what we were people, trying to avoid? Some people would say that. Some yes, people, some people. That's wrong too. Is it? Yeah. So um, because the first entrepreneurs were jewelers, so. I, I trace entrepreneurship back to this tribe, small tribe of hunter-gatherers in eastern Jordan that spent the winter next to this marble outcrop, and they built what, what absolutely constitutes a jewelry factory. So they had different, they flattened out a stone and they chiseled pieces off of the marble and they had different setups. So the first person would, would take the, the chunk and then, you know, create a, a, a little square bead out of it. Another person would drill the hole and then another person would form it around it. And then another one would, would polish it. And so it sounds like they invented the assembly line as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Seven thousand BC, yeah. hunter gatherers. So, so what, what, what's what's really mind boggling about this is that this is this is before there was any social hierarchy. This was before there was any economy. This was before there were there was politics and power elites and, and the like. 
so this is a primal human characteristic. Now, what's also interesting is that uh, it was very, very dangerous. <laughs> so, uh, because uh, entrepreneurial behavior often caused uh, rifts between tribes and between people, because one side might feel taken advantage of. Buyer's remorse <laughs> is also uh, timeless. And so many small little societies as they formed, they actually um, uh, you know, prevented people from being entrepreneurial. And in some places, they, they, there were even death sentences for people if they got too entrepreneurial. In, in, in ancient Stone Age times. Well, one of the things you were mentioning at the, at the top of the show, which is, you know, that full six minutes of history now, um, is that entrepreneurship is often misunderstood. Now, here we are and recording this. This is actually, I, I don't like to mention times because these shows don't come out on the same day we record them, but this is actually my first episode recording of 2023. Congratulations for your top of the list. But you know, you look at like where we're coming into 2023 and, you know, and entrepreneurship and, and capitalist type enterprises have are beginning to well, look at SpaceX is a great example. NASA doesn't shoot rockets into space anymore. And, you know, there's a reason for that. And, and there's a more competitive, innovative uh, culture that exists around capitalism and, and entrepreneurship. And you're right. It also does. Well, like the idea, and I don't like to get too political here, but the idea of, you know, communism and everyone doing their equal part, mm -hmm. and it sounds great, but human nature destroys the feasibility of that immediately. And so, you know, is, is one of the positions that you take or that you believe in that, that, we, that at times when we stifle entrepreneurship, we also stifle growth and innovation? Uh, I do believe that. Uh I, I, I want to point out, though, that no leader and no system has ever been successful at stomping out entrepreneurs. So today, in North Korea, every weekend, you will find throughout North Korea uh, these pop-up, what we would consider to be flea markets, but these, these you know, pop-up stands where you could buy anything. So you can buy, you know, all this contraband every weekend. And these people, uh, you know, uh, could be arrested and could be, you know, killed for doing this, but they, they risk it. But society also looks the other way because it ultimately, entrepreneurs are about making people happy. And so this, you know, hidden entrepreneurship in North Korea is tolerated because it keeps people being less restless with with society. So, so communist societies have have uh, lots of entrepreneurs, um, but a key characteristic of of societies that have successful entrepreneurs is that they let the entrepreneurs act in a very self-directed way that they put as few constraints on them as possible. 
So fewer constraints equals more innovation, period, end of report for all time. So as we move down the timeline a little bit, in, in 300 BC, Aristotle wrote about the concept of, quote, entrepreneurial spirit. So, uh -huh. I mean, that, that, that concept, you know, we hear about, I mean, that's a, you hear that a lot now. I mean, yeah. that's always been, I don't, can't remember ever not hearing that, but he wrote about it in, uh, in work, in his work politics and discussing the role of individuals, taking risks and pursuing opportunities for profit. Now, one of the things you mentioned is the study of, of entrepreneurs. And I, I am personally of the belief that there are some people that are, Okay. First off, anybody can become an entrepreneur. Anyone can give it a shot. Um, some people are, are wired for tolerating it and making it through alive. Um, and I say alive because the stress and the effects of being an entrepreneur are handled very, very different than some people. And my wife is a, is a very different personality style for me. And she'll openly tell you, she's like, I couldn't do what you do at all ever because the stress, the decision-making it just, the, that part of it leads to a lot of problems. We've had episodes and series on startup hustle that are dedicated just to that because founders depression is a real thing and there's a lot to unpack. So you know, when it comes to the success of entrepreneurs over history, what are some of the what are some of the traits, qualities or things that you found really make some of us better at it than others? Yeah. I was surprised by what I found. So if, if you study entrepreneurs in all these different cultures over all this different times, what you find is that that entrepreneurship is actually a collective behavior and not an individual behavior. It's, it's, it's a swarming behavior. So when an initial entrepreneur finds that they can create value from applying AI to, you know, to, to, to sports predictions or, or whatever, and that first one is successful, others notice that other people notice that and say hey i can do that and they and they copy and all of a sudden this swarm starts developing around this initial success now not everybody can keep up with that swarm because within the swarm in 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 doing the copying everybody innovates a little bit whether they realize it or not, the personalization that they do by copying ultimately leads to testing out little ideas that accumulate into bigger ideas and bigger innovations. So the, so the swarm is what makes this such a pressure packed, uh, you know, career endeavor. But from that, there's this realization that the entrepreneur's single highest return on invested time and money is to actually copy what others have done successfully and, and achieve that level. And they will be able to maintain themselves in that swarm 
successfully. Well, that's the better, faster, cheaper uh-huh. side of things. And, you know, uh, I, I poke fun at myself for dropping out of schools. One of them was actually a top business school at mm-hmm. Indiana University, Kelly School of Business. And yeah. they, they really, uh, they, they, you know, there were so many professors that beat that in to our heads. And, you know, it was like whether you're trying to start something or go to work for something, two out of three of the better, faster, cheaper elements have to exist for you to even really stand a chance. If you get three out of three, you're in really good shape, like really good shape. And, but two out of three, if you're only one out of three, you kind of struggle. And then another thing too, is, you know, you look at competition and so many people are like, people get freaked out about competition. Competition's good for you because it stirs up awareness and it forces and drives innovation and it kind of forces Mm -hmm. you to be better. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I laugh at is, as I get people that want input, advice, referrals, anything regarding how to get a startup funded. And I get these people that show up and they say, well, I don't have any competition. And first off, 90% of the time, it takes me less than five minutes to prove that wrong. Like they just haven't really looked at it. And then the other times it's literally, you don't have any competition. It's not because you're a genius and you figured out something that no one else thought of. It's that you're, there's not really a, a commercialized approach to whatever. There's not the value that you believe or the problem that you're solving doesn't have any actual value, which, or, or you're grossly overestimating it, which is the number one reason that startups and entrepreneurial ventures fail is the lack of a good product market fit. Cool. And, and so, yeah. And then, you know, you also look at, you know, go back to that SpaceX NASA comparison well, SpaceX, while they don't have, well, they can I guess the, they have competition, maybe not as well known, but that will drive the cost of doing that down cheaper where NASA was basically a monopoly in that regard. And they're the only, the, of course you're going to, you know, just lack of oversight control. And I don't know, I think that's part of one of the issues. It's like, if we all ran our businesses, like the government ran theirs, we'd all be out, we'd be all be out looking for jobs because can't run at this at this negative zero balance and part of that's actually part of the the problem that we solve at full scale which is time for me to mention that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult especially when you visit fullscale.io where you can build a software team quickly and affordably we use the full scale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers testers and leaders are ready to join your team visit fullscale.io i'm in the business of helping tech companies build teams of offshore developers and, and it's, it's amazing because we, we're only five years old. We're an Inc. 5000 company. We're winning awards from Forbes and, and Deloitte and stuff like that. And you talk about, we didn't invent the offshore developer. We saw the need and we saw so many businesses and companies struggling to do it effectively. And people are like, oh, my offshore developers were terrible. It's not because people outside of your market are stupid. It's because you have failed at finding smart people, which are everywhere there's smart people everywhere yeah. you go every, anywhere you anywhere you want to go there are smart people you just have to know how to find them and you and the value that we provide is is helping you prevent failure because yeah. because hiring the wrong people and getting the wrong people in on your tech projects and all that it's distracting it's expensive it sets back your timeline in some cases it'll just wreck your company so, you know, not, I mean, we have tons of competition and we're managing to excel and go over and above because we bring an angle and understanding of the problem because we're software entrepreneurs ourselves. 
And, and that's a different, that's a different value proposition and it's a different outlook. And we, I mean, we like, if we can't help our clients and customers win, I won't even take the contract. Like, and, and that's, and, and by the way, that baffles some people. They're like, wait a minute, you, you'll consider not taking me as a client. Oh, absolutely. We tell more people no than we tell people yes. But that's a little bit of a paradigm shift with people, you know, what people are talking about. Okay. So, so, you know, we kind of move in to the, into the AD period. And according to my notes, the concept of the middleman emerges in Europe uh, with individuals acting as intermediaries in trade and, and commerce. So, um, you know, that, that, that's been a whole nother, yeah. a whole nother thing. And so, some people are obsessed with being the middleman and some people are obsessed with removing them altogether. It's true. And, um, chat GPT is, has a Western bias there I'm sure. yeah. and, and, and therefore is overlooking, uh, some important things that were happening in China. I should probably mention that I'm not standing behind these facts. I asked AI this just because I'm on the show with a professor from Princeton, a professor of entrepreneurship. I had to have my shit together here. (laughs) So so, um, Confucius actually talks about the middleman and, and, he, he, one of his followers was uh, a, a merchant, a middleman merchant, okay, that, that Confucius in, in, in his analytics, you know, uses him as, as a metaphor for what is, what is good, what's a good profit motive. So this guy, Zidong, um, was good because the profit he made, he used it to help the you know the poor people around him, and he used it to help his his community and his family uh, to be healthy and to prosper. And so, so, so th- this issue about middlemen actually is is more of an Eastern concept than it is a Western concept. The West got got it, you know, independently, or maybe you know through diffusion, but but it, it shows up in the East first. And what's interesting also is that this middleman concept proves to be the most potent form of entrepreneurship, highest chances of success, and the one that's embraced most by minorities and immigrants throughout time. Why? Because everybody loves somebody that's, you know, willing to be servile to them and they pay handsomely for that. That's interesting. And, you know, the, I mean, and, and I agree, like I'm sitting here reading this and, you know, it's telling me the concept in the middleman and I'm thinking, this has probably occurred a lot earlier than that. Now, Confucius was around from five, 551 BC mm-hmm. to 479 BC. So he's back there and he's, Way back he's there. on the, yeah, he, that's a, a long time ago. And I'm willing to bet that there was middlemen way, 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 way before that. 
Yeah, yeah. Because because you might you might for 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 you might be a direct seller to one person. You can be that you can well middle. I mean, there's always someone sending something off. It's excess capacity or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Middleman, the middleman is a is a is a uh, well. Maybe I'm a middleman. I don't know. Well, you are. I mean, it, you yeah, are. it depends. It depends putting, on how you look at it. Yeah, you're putting two groups together. So here, here we are in this world, in this age of you know the world has shrank. Global commerce. You know, I have 300 employees that are literally on the other opposite side of the planet from where I'm at. In the 1600s, the Dutch East India Company, which is pretty well known, uh, that may, may have probably been one of the biggest global corporations on record. Mm-hmm. Um, traveling all around. Now, one of the things that, that isn't in these notes was, you know, so some of these things as, as they came along, we started getting a lot of study and, and input on things like the law of supply and demand, which mm-hmm. when you put the word law in front of something, it's pretty concrete, like the law of gravity. I've talked about the law of supply and demand is something you can't overcome, but it was also the, I believe it was the Dutch that were behind the tulip, uh, the, what was it, tulip mania. Yeah, Tulipmania, uh, uh, and you and you get all these these manias, and and of course, swarms of entrepreneurs form around that. Well, let's and, tell the tell the story of Tulipmania just a little bit because I don't think everyone's familiar with it. Well, uh, ultimately, um, it in in the Netherlands. Around in the 17th century, um, they were very successful as a country, very prosperous, and uh, some entrepreneurs uh, started enticing the public to buy tulips, particularly ones with unusual patterns, as uh, to display in their window boxes or the like to dis, uh, show status. So all of a sudden, well, it became very important for people to ha- have almost like a badge uh, that they could display of tulips around their houses that uh, indicated how successful they were. And so there was the bidding wars started over the more exotic forms of tulips where in a matter of you know a few months tulips were more valuable these you know exotic tulips were more valuable than gold and th- this you know frenzy was something that that people would spend you know, much of their time and a lot of their money doing. Uh, but ultimately, um, uh, with all of these bubbles, um, somebody of, of note says, hey, look, I'm, you know, I have high status and I don't really care about these tulips anymore. <laughs> and when that person's, you know, turns away and gets bored with it, then all of a sudden the market collapses. And there, there are many instances in history where, where, that, where that happened. Entrepreneurs tend to be 
the ones that instigate it, and they're the ones that suffer when it when it collapses. But but I, I want to make I want to point out something that entrepreneurs are really 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 good at. Okay, and that is they can create demand. Yeah, creating hype. It's a it's a superpower. Right, and you know what they they've been doing it since at least you know four four thousand years ago when when they had their their version of sort of celebrity endorsements where uh, an entrepreneur would make something and they would give it to the king or they'd give it to the vizier or whatever and then they go around to all the other uh you know wealthy people and they say look the king the king has, has one the yeah, queen is wearing it so right. influencer marketing, man. You got it. Four thousand yeah. years old. Yeah. And so, well, you, you know, the the tulip mania is a, a very interesting thing because it was it was a very it's a very well documented um, study in supply and demand, and you know, like the hype creates this mm. this craze. And then, you know, obviously tulips. So they're talking about bulbs that could be brought in. And then there's this glut in the marketplace, or maybe people are a little bored with it. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's you, so the, the point with the, the idea of supply and demand is when it's a law, it's, it's, it's undefeatable in many regards. And, you know, that's why there, there's so few things that are truly it, like a law. And as an entrepreneur, understanding that law of supply and demand, and you can't just, just you can't just will your way past it. It's it's difficult to innovate past it. It's 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 a concrete thing, similar to gravity. And you know that's that's an important side of understanding stuff. And you ran. I mean, there's uh, in the modern area. Well, we had the Beanie Baby thing. You know that was that was Pet one rock. of the was that eighties or nineties? That was nineties, yeah. right? Pet rocks. Yeah, pet rocks. I mean, and then and then on some levels, crypto is mm-hmm. has been has had a, a there's been a little a, some mania uh, surrounding that, and you're seeing that cool down. And you know, like whether you know a lot of the stuff that now I don't think Beanie Babies Beanie Babies don't have utility necessarily, mm-hmm. but things like you know you know blockchain might. But you know, a lot of it is is you know sometimes I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, how is this get what well, NFTs? NFTs mm-hmm. were last year's were last year's kind of digital explosion, and where are that? I mean, that's just imploded now. So there's a lot to go. You know, now now moving down the timeline, an important part of, of an entrepreneurship. Um, you know, the industrial Re- revolution during the 1700s marked a huge change in the in just the the, the manufacturing and production and. Um, you know, that, that I, and, and in many ways built new forms of entrepreneurship. Now you mentioned it's, it's really interesting. I didn't realize that, that, you know, the assembly line model was seven or 9,000 years old. And you know what I find, I find the older I get, the, the further history went, goes yeah. back. So it probably, it, well, we'll do this show in like five years and you'd be like, so in 11,000 BC, uh, so, yeah, I, I find that history is flexible when it comes to the teaching of it. But the Industrial Revolution was it was a big thing and it and it brought a lot of manufacturing and kind of like well, you talk about supply and demand. It, it increased entrepreneurs abilities to make more supply. Yeah. Well, what's interesting and people don't realize is that in the Industrial Revolution 
was actually uh, crushing for most entrepreneurs. So uh, it crushed entrepreneurs in two ways. So those that didn't adopt new STEAM-enabled technologies, of course, couldn't compete. Mm -hmm. But even those that did adopt the STEAM-based, you know, uh, unlimited production models, they failed because they produced too many and there wasn't the demand. It was, the demand was small and, and they outproduced it. That's the era when all of these major innovations were done in how to get people to want more than they actually need. And so, so the modern shopping experience before the, in the industrial revolution, shopping was a chore. After the industrial revolution, mostly through the innovations of Josiah Wedgwood, you know, the, the potter and, you know, vase designer, he, he produced so many more ceramics because of this that he realized I got to create demand. I'm producing more than, than, you know, my normal customers want. So he created the tranquil shop, the shop where ladies could come and browse examples of, of, of pottery and, and tea sets that the queen used or Tsarina Catherine, you know, Catherine the Great used or whatever. And they, and there were sales people around that would educate the, the, the ladies. And this created a sensation of, you know, a great way to spend an afternoon was just, you know, perusing all the different designs and, and the like. And, and of course, like everything, it was so successful that lots of entrepreneurs copied it. And you had all these stores opening in London and they, you know, became the most, you know, uh, successful at creating enormous, huge demand that, you know, significantly stimulated the economy and the industrial revenue revolution would not have succeeded without it. But, you know, that's the experience is, mm -hmm. is a big thing. And, you know, that's, you know, you talk about increasing the demand and that's been the thing that's really been eye opening as I've, you know, talking about opening a, an, uh, an enterprise in the Philippines is there's a, a, while they have a lot of modern things there, you see so many people that are happily surviving and doing fine mm -hmm. without all the materialistic stuff. And you're like, wow, um, they're pretty happy yeah. without all the crap and out all the stuff. And, you know, yeah, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but you know, a lot of, a lot of our creation of, uh, the consumerism and stuff like that is, Oh, there's a lot of people to think that that will also lead to our ruin yeah. and, they might be right. Okay, so the term entrepreneur is in the 1800s coined by French economist Jean-Baptiste Say to describe individuals who take the risk of starting and running a business. So mm -hmm. 
Um, maybe if we're going to talk about the history of entrepreneurship, there's, there's, there's the word. Um, and by the way, who, which one of you listening can actually spell the word entrepreneur without having to look? Yeah, that's what I thought. It's so funny. If it wasn't for spell check, I probably, I, I finally get it right all these years later, but yeah, not the easiest word. It's not the shortest word, yeah. but, but yeah. So then I, you know, as in 1900s entrepreneurship becomes more broadly defined to include a wide range of business activities, concepts, and becomes really associated with small business. Now, let me, let's, let's shift for such a second here. Cause um, there's a common question. So, you know, we have, uh, you look at, uh, the franchise is a very important part of small business ownership. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of people that say, is a franchise owner an entrepreneur? Oh, yeah, they yeah. are. An entrepreneur is anyone that takes the risk. It's Are they a founder? Not of the franchise, but they're a founder of the organization that owns a franchise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when it comes to franchise activity now, I, while I'm not a super religious person myself, the church is a pretty effective franchise. It's been worldwide for a long time. Um, did you find any anything related to, you know, franchise behavior and activity and like uh, not trying to put you on the spot here? But I mean, that that feels like a very, very important part of entrepreneurship for so many people in the modern age. Yeah. Romans. Romans okay. um, would would, um, would basically franchise by allowing their famous name to be used. I see. And, uh, and, and that was, I, I, I think, you know, demonstrated that, that, you know, the, the, a famous name could, could bring business to a shop or to a um, importer or the like. And so they would pay, um, about 10%, you know, so similar to what franchise fees are today for the use of, of, of a family name. And um, the family, of course, had to approve, you know, they didn't let anybody just use their name. So there was an agreement, you know, a written agreement, a franchise, you know, so similar to a franchise agreement that, um, that we, you know, um, we, we, we promise to only produce the highest quality, whatever it is, bread, you know, uh, and in return, you'll let us use your name and we'll give you 10% of our uh, revenues. That's interesting. I, did, I wasn't aware of that. You know, I find that a lot of stuff traces back, a lot of capitalists and, and, you know, commerce stuff. I mean, I mean, it's been around forever. I mean, it's been around. You find vestiges of it everywhere. Yeah. I, I, a, a, a shocking example of this, venture capital, right? So w we think that American venture capital, particularly as centered in Silicon Valley, has really cracked the code on how to stimulate innovation. And, and hey, it does, and it's really important, and it's a, it's a great asset for, for the country. Turns out in Mesopotamia, in 2000 BC, there were venture capitalists and they were using the exact same form of, of finance structure as Silicon Valley entrepreneurs do today. They would 
get money from investors and put it into 10 year limited liability partnerships <laughs> where, where the, their version of the general partner would receive one third of the profits and all the investors would receive two thirds of the profits. Investing that, that, in new that, that might also mean that the history of bad pitch decks go back to the Roman era exactly. too. So no, no, yeah, this, and then this, you were probably presenting a tablet or a scroll. Yeah. Um, but then, but I bet back then you still probably got funded when you had a shorter one that would, that really defined your problem, your solution and the return you would give to the investor. Um, <laughs> clay, clay tablets on clay tablets, but, but they had, but they still had closing parties when they closed the, the finance. Nice. nice. So they still, so that, th that also means that the, the poor use of investment capital also goes back to the Roman period. Oh, That's oh, a, no, this yeah. is, this is Mesopotamia. Oh, oh, even better. Even 2000 better. BC. So for those of you that just got funded that are using the money poorly, if you get called out on it, say, hey, look, we're not new. This has been going on since the Mesopotamians. Just mm -hmm. deal with it. Okay, exactly. so here and, and you know, uh, I'm, we've, we've moved through the history of commerce and entrepreneurship so quickly and effectively. And it brings us to my, well, okay, I, I personally believe that we are, we have been experiencing a golden age of entrepreneurship. Um, in the last 20 years that it is honestly incomparable to any other period because technology has, has created access to so many things. I mean, just like the ability for someone to step in to a good idea and bring it out and create it is, is so much more accessible now. And, you know, you look at like, like people that invent little electronics, you have things like the raspberry Pi, which makes, you know, makes it possible and programmable for someone to do something where, you know, 40 years ago, they would have had to build the whole damn thing and had, and would have had a hard time getting the parts or finding the guidance or, or, or a video of someone talking about how to do something, you know, and it's just like, so, so here in 2000 and, you know, the internet, digital technology and this explosion of entrepreneurial activity, VC activity, rise and fall of a lot of different stuff. I mean, what, I, I'm curious to hear, hear your commentary on the now. Which I can't help but put into a context, okay, because th there, there have been dozens of entrepreneurial golden ages and... So Rome, for example, could not ex have existed and swollen to a city of 1 million people with 30 million people in the Roman Empire without entrepreneurs figuring out how to get supply chains to work. It was, it was a golden age that enabled all sorts of previously inconceivable, you know, uh, activities and products and, and movement of people and, and the like. And there were, uh, you know, quite a few other periods like that in, in history. But br bringing that back to the present, okay, is that entrepreneurs are the single biggest force of change in, on the planet. They far exceed 
what governments can do, what religions could do, what, what big business does. It, it, entrepreneurs are what, you know, are what drive innovation now and, you know, forever going forward. A challenge though, is that there are all these side effects from the innovation that entrepreneurs do. And, and we tend to gloss over that. Okay, so the problems with privacy, the problems with, you know, uh, entrepreneurs are responsible for most of the pollution and a lot of the climate change and, the, you know, type two diabetes and things like that. And but other entrepreneurs come along and often fix these problems too, though. That, There's a, that, a weird little cyclical nature of that. And I agree with what you're saying at the same time, like, because an entrepreneur doesn't, they look at a problem and they see an opportunity where people that are non-entrepreneurs just look at a problem and see a problem. Right. And, 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 and so the challenge is because innovation is happening faster and faster, because of our technologies and because of entrepreneurs, we, we need to respond faster and faster to these unintended consequences. And, and that is what, what, you know, maybe hasn't been f invented yet. <laughs> Yeah, and I hear you on the, the there, uh, there will be another golden age of entrepreneurship and another one and another one and another one. Assuming that entrepreneurs, the side effects or whatever, something doesn't implode all of it. Now, at, you know, at my advanced age of 47, which is experience, not age people, um, I've, I've lived through several apocalypses already. So um, I'm sure entrepreneurs will continue to figure things out. You know, one of the things that when I look at the history of entrepreneurship, I, I've always... I've always referred to it as being very Darwinistic and, you know, sometimes it's market conditions. Sometimes it's not like, you know, COVID for example, created, created entrepreneurial ideas. And it also crushed a lot of businesses that were quite honestly, not very well equipped to do anything more than last for a week without revenue. And, you know, I'm sorry if you're one of those, those people, I don't mean to say that and make those comments in an insensitive way, but, you know, we, we just talked about it, you know, as we kind of, you know, come to an end to this and, you know, it's probably a good time to remind all of you that Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. We can help you find software developers. We can help you move your innovation forward. We can do it quickly and affordably. Go to Fullscale.io. We love talking to people about how we can help them you know, help their dreams come true, you know, as we, you know, kind of wrap, you know, wrap a lot of this up and you, you talk about, you know, this, this nature of, of, you know, I think that there are one, maybe one of the laws of entrepreneurship is that things will always change and competition will increase. And I think that you're one of the things I learned during the pandemic is to run, uh, almost be running a business as if tomorrow's calamity were about to happen. And, you know, being prepared and that's, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's bad timing in that. I'm not a big believer in luck. I believe in preparation, preparation and opportunity. It was the, also the Greeks or the Romans that pointed out that that was that, you know, that, that we refer to luck. Mm -hmm. I'm not lucky, man. I'm hardworking. I, I don't feel lucky when I work a 90 hour week as an entrepreneur or when I have to travel around the world to go 
it's the life I chose. Right. And, and there's ups and downs that come with that. And, you know, we started kind of into this historical journey. Now I'm willing to bet in the history of entrepreneurship, it's always been stressful and difficult and, uh, it's created wealth. It's destroyed wealth. It's, it's, that's what you sign up for. Um, and, you know, I think as we kind of, and thanks for joining me once again, professor, uh, Derek Leto, uh, I just ordered your book on Amazon. I want everyone else to go do it too. It's, uh, um, it's, I, 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 I'm a nerd when it comes to this stuff. My wife will be like, you should stop working. And so I stop working and I'll go like watch a history channel, like a history channel series. Like I love the, the whatever that made America series, whether it's food, toys, you know, men, Titans, all that stuff. I'm so fascinated with that. And, you know, I think as an entrepreneur that that stuff for me is like elementary school history that uh, you you can learn so much from that. Um, I didn't mention earlier, I've actually on the side, I I have a hobby of studying the traits of genius. And people keep saying they're like, you're going to write another book or do another podcast. I'm probably not. I'm probably not. Because you know, 1.4 million new books come out. I think the world of literature will be fine without my next one. Um, and, uh, but with that, you know, I, there are a lot of very repeatable um, traits of quote genius, which is very misunderstood, much like entrepreneurship. Um, and there's things that you can do to be a better genius or bring out your genius. There's things you can do to be a better entrepreneur. And then, some people are kind of made a little more for it. Uh, one of the things that I found that really crosses over between people that we call genius, which by the way, are almost all entrepreneurs. Uh, there's a, there's an inter, a level of enterprise that exists in, in the people that we often refer to as genius and that keeps them moving. But curiosity is a big thing. And that's mm-hmm. a very important part of successful entrepreneurship. It's a, it's a trait that people have with genius. And most people that study the genius side of things believe that you don't have a shot at being a genius if curiosity does not exist. So in your study, if you have to break this down to like one or two things that if they don't exist in an entrepreneur, your likelihood of success is minimal. What, what, what do you got? So, you, you, you nailed it with curiosity because it's really important to be open to learning things, new things. <clears throat> also, copying. Mm-hmm. You got to be willing to open up and accept that other people can do things uh, very well, and that it's not just okay, it's it's a good idea to follow in their footsteps. So those two things are, are very characteristic of successful entrepreneurs. But most, okay. of the pe- most of the people that we associate with, quote, inventing something weren't the first people to do it. Right. And they, and- they just kind of came along and did it a little better and, 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 and perfected it or just took a different look at it. And, and a lot of times it's because the original inventor or innovator wasn't very entrepreneurial. They were just kind of like building something that they thought was cool. It's kind of back to that classic, I focus too much on the product and not on selling the product because mm-hmm. that won't really create an enterprise without the sales side of things. Well, that, well, that's the difference between an inventor and an innovator. 
an inventor mm -hmm. is all, all focused on, you know, perfecting this new way of doing something while an innovator is, is focused on bringing new ideas to, a new, to groups of people who think that that's the best thing they've ever seen. And um, so in, inventors are uh, not very successful <laughs> entrepreneurs. Uh, never have been. They can be geniuses, absolutely. You know, Louis Pasteur is a genius, right? But he didn't deliver pasteurized milk to children in 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 the you know millions of gallons. It was entrepreneurs and innovators that did that. Well, and, and with that, a charismatic nature um, is is. If I had to add one more thing in. Um, cause you, you mentioned that, and I like to use the end of the show to kind of wrap up a few of the key points, but I think that one of the things that kept going through my head, cause I, I'm one of those people, you hear me say the CEO needs to be the company's best salesperson. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and people ask me a lot, they're like, well, Matt, what do you want to do? What do you want to become? I'm like, I want to become Mickey mouse. Uh, Mickey Mouse stands in front of the magical kingdom and waves for everyone to come in. And, you know, and that he's kind of the CEO in Disney in that way. And he's out there. Hey, come on in. You trust me. And here's the thing. When you get in, when you get in Disneyland or world or wherever it is that you're going, uh, you don't see Mickey Mouse a lot inside the, he's not in, and that's the thing is like there you, and where it's a challenge that, but that charisma, that sales nature, the promoter, uh, being able to create hype and getting people excited. It's, and it's not just like the buyer. It's also the people that are, you, you know, all you can do is all you can do. So if you can't get those that are working on it with you excited, you have a very difficult time pushing things forward. And, and that's that, and, and, you know, there's this uh, stubbornness that exists in inventors, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Uh, now, look, I nail, I put a couple more in. I, I, I'd be rude if I didn't. Is there, is there, another, is there another, another couple traits you'd like to bundle in here? Well, so I, I've written three books. My first book was Startup Leadership, and that talked about what it takes to be the leader that can assemble a team to take an idea out of thin air and develop it into an actual, you know, value producing, self-sustaining, you know, enterprise like, like you do. <laughs> um, and the, 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 the second book I wrote is, is about the characteristics and, and what it takes uh, to prepare to be an entrepreneur, do, do you have it? How good do you have to be? You know, how how much money do you need, really, or not? Uh, more, more is the answer to that one, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know, so, so th there are. Uh, there's been a lot of research in this area, a lot of insights and findings, but, but ultimately preparing for being an entrepreneur is far more important than any single characteristic. It's somebody that puts their mind to it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to think about what's necessary. I'm going to find my competitors. I'm going to figure out who to copy. 
and they're the ones that are the most successful. I, I'm often I'm often heard saying, "Hey, it's America. You don't have to have the original idea. You just mm -hmm. have to bring it to market and figure out how to do it better, faster, and cheaper, yeah. and then you stand a chance." You know, the, one last thing is I I I, I didn't. I think in the history of entrepreneurship and commerce, one of the things that that I also learned was kind of, it be, I don't want to say it's a law, but it's it's getting close to it is when you talk about placement in an industry and, you know, his former GE chairman, Jack Welsh, that that went in and, and sold off all the, all the things that GE did that weren't number one or number two in an industry. And if you're not, uh, if you're trying to, so you talk about where, disruption and startups and entrepreneurs come in, um, you know, some of the best advice that I received was on this show uh, from Laurel Holt, who's been in one of my books, and he was the founder of an automotive uh, technology franchise called Carstar. Uh, he said, hey, Matt, I'm a coward. And mm -hmm. I was like, man, you don't seem like it. You seem pretty brave. And he's like, no, I'm a coward. I like to take, I like to take an idea that no one else is doing where everyone will leave me alone, and then I get really good at it. Uh -huh. He's like, I don't try to take on the giants. I don't try to, I'm not coming out of the box saying I'm going to take down Google. I'm going to take down Amazon. That's too brave. I like the cowardly approach. And, yeah. you know, people don't understand that. I, I took me like, it took me a little bit to actually kind of like absorb that and bring it in. But I think that, that that's also great advice for so many different people. It's like, it's a daunting task to take down Goliath. You know, yeah. and and the fact is, is in that you hear David and Goliath, but in the alternate version of that, ninety nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine times out of a hundred thousand, Goliath just stepped on David and kept moving and didn't even know he had done it. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot to be said there. I'd love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about the the personality traits. I I, I love the versus things. I love versus questions, and I actually wrote down innovate her innovator versus inventor yeah. uh, a genius versus crazy are you driven or are you obsessed there's this interesting fine line that that comes through that we're out of time on this episode but like i said i'd love to have you back this is a an episode i've wanted to do for a really long time and thank you for uh, participating in it with me hey matt thank you so much for inviting me i really enjoyed it see y'all down the road Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.